0: Welcome to Veracity Radio. This week we saw an end to the drill moratorium in the face of the worst environmental catastrophe in our history. Judge Feldman tells the U.S. government, not so fast. But should he have been able to even rule on this matter in the first place, considering his financial ties? We'll talk to Kate Gordon of the Center for American Progress on these conflicts of interest and how to move jobs from an oil based economy to green jobs. I'll also speak with Representative Gene Green of Texas District 29 about the district that is perhaps the most refining capacity in the United States, his plan to get those jobs turned into green jobs, the health concerns in the district, and his financial ties and campaign contributions. And then I talk with Maria LaHood about the Maher Arar case that was denied review before the Supreme Court, and whether the United States really believes in its own justice system or the value of its own laws. And our special guest this evening is Captain James Yi. Ye served as a Muslim chaplain at Guantanamo Bay before the U.S. government accused him of sedition, spying for the enemy, and refusing a general order. June is Torture Awareness Month, and we thank Captain Yi for joining us to discuss his treatment, treatment of detainees, and bigotry against Muslims in the United States and in the U.S. military. And Dick Cheney is in the hospital. i have a few thoughts at the end of the show about his well-being. But first... Kate Gordon works for the Center for American Progress and has been speaking this week about the conflicts of interest held by judges in the Southern District. You're listening to Veracity Radio. We are joined now by Kate Gordon from the Center for American Progress. Uh, Good morning, Kate. Good morning. I always like to give the audience an overview of of these organizations uh, briefly as possible. Can you tell us a little bit about Center for American Progress, and then we'll talk about what you do there.
1: Sure, absolutely. We're a think tank based in Washington, D.C. We do progressive policy on a number of issues. Energy is one of them. And uh, I run the energy team. I'm the vice president for energy policy at the Center for American Progress.
0: What brought you to my attention was the decision this week from Judge Feldman and I was looking at the money behind this judge. And as I was scanning more articles, I came across some of your comments. Let's talk about the decision made uh, first, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about the financial ties that the judge has. So in the, the primary decision was about a moratorium that was placed on the drilling wells, not the production wells. Right, Uh, But the drilling wells, which from what I saw last night on Rachel Maddow, uh, was uh, about 33 wells. Is that correct?
1: It's exactly 33, yeah. It's a very tiny percentage of the overall number operating in the U.S.
0: And that compared to the overall platform uh, count for production wells, she mentioned about 3,600. Yeah, I think that's right. So that's really a fraction I almost don't even have to do the math on. That's almost an irrelevant amount of drilling wells. Why do you think that this judge... Uh, did you read the opinion first off?
1: Yeah, I read the opinion. Okay, mm-hmm.
0: why did the judge say that um, that he thought this was uh, an improper moratorium?
1: Well, just to backtrack a little bit, the, uh, the, admin- the administration has the uh, legal ability to suspend drilling operations whenever there's an immediate threat to the economy or the environment, and we definitely have that here. So no one has any question that the administration had the right to do this, and in fact the, you know, the decision doesn't question that. Um, what the administration did was really to say, look, we need to, take, we need to hit the pause button here, we need to take a breath, and make sure that these 33 rigs, which are all deep water rigs, don't, um, are up to safety standards. We need to double check them because they weren't checked before. We need to just make sure they're up to code and uh, we need to take a breath to do that. What the judge essentially said was not, you know, the judge did not say you don't have the right to do Don't this. What the judge said was that the administration hadn't given enough explanation of why six months was necessary. Okay. So he didn't say you can't do it. He said, give me a better, I need a better explanation of why I need to do six months.
0: Okay, so if he didn't object to the action itself per se, although uh, some of the language in there was saying that they acted capriciously, which really basically means they acted quickly uh, to make a decision, and that they were rather blanketing in their decision, so they didn't narrow down to a specific rig that was a problem. They said, we want to affect all, in the case of these 33, we want to affect all 33 of these. Right. And that would span, um, do you know how many companies that would affect immediately?
1: Um, you know, it's a fairly big range of companies because these are big, big operations, obviously, and they um, they contract out on a number of things. Um, for instance, Deepwater Horizon, which owned the rig, in I'm sorry, not Deepwater Transocean, which owned the Deepwater Horizon rig, which is the one everyone knows about. They were rig owners for at least two, and probably more of these thirty three. So you got a lot of contractors, you have a lot of owners, you have a lot of different people involved. Um, don't know how many companies it is. I think in the in the decision, it's estimated that that uh, it's something, you know, some something in the order of 20 or something companies, but I can't remember.
0: Now, critics of his decision said that in response, he uh, basically acted capriciously, that the irony of his decision was that he had clearly laid out the government's responsibility, but then he himself did not even follow that. Does that well, he you?
1: goes way in the opposite direction. I mean, he it's kind of ironic, actually. He lays out in the decision, how high a bar he as a judge needs to meet to question an agency action, and how high a bar he as a judge has to has to meet to uh, to do a preliminary injunction, which is what he does in this case. So, he basically is at a very high standard. He's not supposed to make this decision unless he has absolute certainty to the right decision. And what's kind of ironic is that what he says in the decision is, the administration didn't give me enough detail on why they wanted six months, but, it, but then he says, so I'm a Throw out the baby with the bathwater. What he could have done was to say, "I don't feel like I have enough information about the length of this moratorium. I want more. I'm not going to stop the moratorium, but I want the administration to put to give to give me more um, to give me more uh, uh, of a relationship between the six month timeline and the the facts that are in the record." So, so instead of doing that, instead of saying, you know, going back to the administration asking for more, he basically says. Or doing a temporary injunction and asking for more, he basically throws it all out.
0: Would we'll go ahead and shoot forward to yesterday. It wasn't really an appeal. The word appeal kept running around the media, and I got really irritated with that because that wasn't an appeal. They uh, they were informally appealing to this judge to uh, delay his um, his order.
1: Right. Um, they were asking him for a stay of his order. So essentially, your... they were asking him for what I just said, which is like, hold on, continue, let's leave this moratorium in place, and we will, you know, we'll work to make the record more complete. Okay. Uh, that's essentially what the administration was saying. Because they have a valid point. I mean, they have the right to stop these activities if there's immediate threat. There is immediate threat right now. There's immediate threat because this industry hasn't been adequately regulated since 2005. There's immediate threat because nobody really knows if all these 33 rigs are up to the standard they need to be and also because if you know god forbid another accident were to happen in the next few months we don't have the resources as a country to deal with it every single thing we have is right now dealing with dealing with the bp deepwater horizon spill
0: according to the ceo of exxon himself there is no real chance that they know how to um to fix these things so he himself said uh Pretty much, yeah, we know how to stick them in the ground, but we're not really sure once they blow up down there. We don't have a response plan.
1: They've got to technically have a response plan that they've put on paper, but um, but yeah, that's right. I mean, they've basically said, you know, whatever it is that we said we knew how to do, it, we're not really clear. And I mean, I think Americans, we all see this playing out right now. Right. It's fairly clear that we don't know how to fix these things. Uh, and that's a big deal, um, you know. Again, this is only 33 rigs; are in the deepest water. It's by far the riskiest type of oil drilling, mm-hmm. and so it's it's a pretty important area to regulate pretty closely. Um, and we had a mineral Management Service that just didn't do its job for a number of years. And I think what the administration is trying to do here is to say, "Look, give us time to just get these guys up to the standard that they should be at anyway." Give us some time to just make sure that they're operating in, you know, at least a somewhat um, reasonable way so that we can feel like it's okay to have them in our oceans.
0: You know, the metaphor I've used around here to explain to a few people the problem is that this is like having a surgeon who you're very clear knows how to work on the spleen but doesn't know how to sew you back up. Okay. So, Although they know how to get into these intricate areas, they're very, very impressive with their technology there. Um, certainly, if we had a surgeon and he couldn't sell you back up, we really wouldn't want him to open you up in the first place.
1: Also the other thing about if it was a surgeon, mm-hmm. um, you know, the you there's been a lot of talk about the liability cap that um BP was mm-hmm. subject to because of the law. If this were a surgeon, he wouldn't have a liability cap. <laughs> He'd be That's responsible true. for all the damages to your body regardless. <laughs> uh so it's it's um it's sort of interesting how we we don't regulate this industry, which is a really this is a really inherently dangerous activity that they're doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's extremely risky and we just we've kind of allowed the industry to regulate itself.
0: The circuit down here, I'm a little bit more familiar with. Um, the Fifth Circuit. Uh, they were all looking to talk with Judge Hughes, for instance. That was the name that first floated around. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they have uh, the uh, Judge Feldman. Yep. It's almost impossible down here to imagine that there's anyone who doesn't have oil ties. But it struck me as odd in this particular case that um, the government wouldn't ask this judge to recuse himself from a decision. Is that a? Is that a? Um, Uh, tangible goal? Is that something a lawyer should have asked for, or would that be basically irrelevant?
1: I mean, I think it's a a high-profile case, and uh, and I'm also surprised. I mean, yeah, a lot of the judges down there have conflicts, and I would assume, given that, that there's some list somewhere, the ones that don't, because this issue comes up a lot. Um, And uh, I'm not talking about judge shopping. I'm just saying, you know, high-profile case, a lot of political attention you know, go to the judges, listed judges that you know don't have these ties. I was surprised, you know, that what we know from the 2008 record, and I think the 2009 record's coming out today, I haven't seen it yet, but okay. at least in 2008, um, Judge Feldman did own Transocean stock, and Transocean's a company um, that, uh, again, not only owned the rig in the deep Deepwater uh, case, but also at least two of the other 33 rigs that were looking to start drilling Uh, had some kind of a deal going with TransOcean. So you're not talking about a speculative, you know, oh, he owns some oil stock and this is a thing about oil. You're actually talking about owning stock in a company whose contracts depend on uh, drilling going forward. So TransOcean gets a daily fee for drilling, pretty high fee. It's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's a so it's a company where every day of a moratorium is going to have a direct financial hit on the company, which means there's a direct financial hit on this judge's um, dividend checks. Which to me is just that's pretty
0: close. That seems about as straight a conflict of interest as anyone can uh, can tie in. Yep. If it's if I said uh, Judge A has uh, financial relations with this drilling company A, but drilling company A is not at all involved in the case I'm working on or looking yep. at then I would say that would be more of a theory. But if I literally could name one of the plaintiffs, potential uh, defendants, I should say, uh, in this, um, Transocean, then it would seem as a no-brainer to immediately contest his right to hear my case. Well,
1: what's interesting here is it's probably why it didn't meet the conflicts check. I'm okay. assuming there's some kind of a computer check at the court. And none of the plaintiffs here are Transocean. But Transocean was contracting. I mean, there's actually, I think uh, I saw this uh, uh, the, the other day, that two of the, the owners of rigs that wanted to start drilling that were stopped by the moratorium mm-hmm. went ahead and sent letters to Transocean saying we're voiding our contracts with you because we can't do, because of the moratorium, we're not going to drill, so we don't want a contract with you. So that's pretty direct. I mean, it probably didn't show up in the computer check because Transocean's not a plaintiff, but Transocean is just like, it's right there in right. these cases.
0: Uh, for those who don't know, by the way, curious enough, when I was looking up links to share with different people about these uh, uh, organizations, these companies, I found it very interesting that Transoceans dot com name was Deepwater dot com and. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I were doing rebranding and I, they would probably call uh you know Blackwater Z, um I would at least come up with something like Transocean.com. Right. Um, well they're
1: the they're the world's largest um, deep water drilling company. So that's, so their, that's their primary really thing. Their niche. Yeah. That's their market share.
0: And do we know, for instance, how many of the rigs that are running around out there now of those thirty three, do we know how many of those are operated by TransOcean themselves?
1: I don't. I don't. All I know, again, is that uh, in at least a couple cases, they they're 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 being asked to you know uh, void contracts they have with some of the companies um, out there because they're because the moratorium. So they're you know they're the folks that rent out the drills and right. equipment to the folks doing deep water drilling. They are the largest company in the world that does that. There's no question they're going to be involved in a bunch of those
0: rigs. Uh, just for the audience, here's here's a list of a few of the names of the companies that were found on that uh, 2008 report and ironically by the way i got the report from judicial watch which is known as a fairly right wing organization mm-hmm. um and uh when people were questioning the you know the uh the veracity of these, uh, the credit, you know, that I drew this from. They said, "Oh, you probably got that from John Podesta's group," or you know, who, who cares? You know, I said, "No, actually, this is your people. <laughs> this is <laughs> these, these are your people looking at the court." So uh, that would be uh, here is an example: Provident Energy, uh, Transocean, Peabody Energy, Atlas Energy, TXCO, uh, EV Energy, BZ, uh, This was the uh, this was one BPZ Energy. Uh, I guess the Z makes all the difference. El Paso Corporation,
1: BP actually is, is either owner or part owner in four of those thirty-three rigs. It's ah. probably worth noting.
0: So Kellogg Brown and Root, Chesapeake uh, Energy, and uh, ATP Oil and Gas. When mm-hmm. looking at the rest of his holdings, he had some uh, basic property and such. But these were there. That's a lot of oil companies to be uh, paying your paying your dividend check. Yeah. So, I'm always amazed
1: that judges don't just divest from everything. I mean, I think it's especially in a region like this. It's just so clear that a bunch of cases coming before you, anything on business business transactions or business services, is going to be is going to be oil company related. And I'm surprised that they're not required to just divest in in everything because it's um it's such an obvious issue.
0: Well, going back a little bit, if I were to talk pre spill, for instance, I know that there are plenty of cases down here that have to do with offshore injury. Uh, A maritime injury and and, and, uh, maritime law. And so these are the same judges that would hear that before this spill. And uh, plaintiff's uh, plaintiffs attorneys like the one I mentioned just here a while ago in my family. um, That's where they're going to wind up. Same judges. And they do shop around to avoid uh, someone who's going to uh, prejudice their case ahead of time. So I don't see how this circuit could work down here. Um, so let's let's move on to something else about this aspect. Uh, do do we know anything about where the appeal might be filed or how the appeal will be handled?
1: Don't know. I mean, I, I guess it goes up to um, the Fifth Circuit, okay. uh, and uh, I think it's an interesting question: what's going to happen with that? It's it's a you know I think uh, now that we know that the administration's um, request for a stay didn't it was not successful, though there will be some kind of an appeal. It'll really come down in that case. The thing about the appeal is that you have to use the same record as is in the first case, and and okay. uh, you know I, those appeals take a long time. And mm-hmm. I'm I think everyone is hoping that the moratorium that we can get all these rigs up to um, the standard they need to be at, and we can get folks, you know, uh, working in a safe and, and reasonable way as soon as we can. So I think I'm hoping that they're just folks are moving forward and trying to figure this out um, as they're rearranging minerals management service and. So uh, so I don't know. It'll be interesting to
0: see. Well, let's look at the political angle of this and then um, talk about moving jobs from a failing industry to something workable. Let's first start with the politicians at hand. Um, Looking at my own representative and his financial um, investments, uh, actually not really, his his, his, uh, donations, um, PAC money donations, not individual contributions, but direct PAC money, the man has a lot of oil money. How can politicians possibly... Rule against um, uh, these corporations when they're in Congress, when they're making, you know, when they're standing up to these uh, companies in Congress, if they're taking that much money. And do you have a sense of how, especially in the South, um, how much money is pouring through those coffers and um, what the effect might be?
1: I mean, I think a lot is um, every one of these politicians, I'm sure, is taking some level of money from this industry. It is the industry in sure. many of these states, Louisiana in particular, 60% of Louisiana's revenues come from oil and gas. So um, I think it's a little bit of a complicated question, though, because, yes, there's direct financial contributions, and that is huge, and it has a, certainly a big impact on how politicians are going to treat the industry players themselves. But also we've got to remember that most of these politicians' constituents also work for this industry, right. so it becomes a little bit complicated because you've got workers who, you know, the workers down there who are laid off because of the moratorium are not happy about the moratorium, and um, and that's just yet another layer. It's part of this bigger problem, I think, which is that we have a whole region, um, you know, the the till a little lesser extent Texas and Florida, but certainly the three middle states in the Gulf State region. Um, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, are very, very dependent on this industry. Individuals there are very dependent on it. It is basically what people know as the economy of this region. And so that being the case, it's very hard to have a conversation about, you know, liability and adequate safety standards and regulation when people's livelihoods are affected every time something happens with this industry. I think it's just really, really tough to kind of pull apart the public interest here from the the industry interest and that in itself is a problem we have got to figure out a way to move the the region off of this level of dependence on this one industry and diversify a little bit and get some more jobs in there that aren't oil and gas jobs
0: when I'm when I talk to my representative one of the things I'm going to ask him is do you not have a responsibility at this point to for you know foresee um, where you, these jobs should be And I'll give you a, a historical backdrop um, I did an op-ed for our show Two weeks ago Where I pointed out That in the f- Around 51 Before the Operation Ajax uh, Toppled Mossadegh. In around 51, when uh, the uh, Iranian government was talking internally about changing the royalty rates and such, and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, the the British people went through the same fits that we heard recently about their pensions and their jobs because BP was the largest employer at the time, 50 years ago. Uh, Fifty years later, they're having to sing the same tune. It's as if they haven't changed a bit and considering that England actually does mature uh first off much more older than our country but they do mature in certain areas of um public discourse and such a little ahead of us we they seem to get it more often than we do 50 years is a long time to not change course with a company yep so if Americans look at that model and we look back at our own behavior in the 70s until now late 70s um I was just a kid but I remember the gas lines a bit um What can the politicians do now to start moving us off of this oil um, economy?
1: Well, you know, I think we have to have this conversation down there. I mean, one thing that that folks have, and we at CAP in particular have started talking about is, you know, the need for some kind of an economic development conference down there to start talking about diversifying the economy. Um, How do you do that, given that every politician who's making decisions and uh, uh, putting money in various policy initiatives is tied to the industry? It's a good question. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of like the situation we face with tobacco. We know tobacco. Mm -hmm. uh, A lot of people are addicted. Has A lot of people work for the industry. Big, big, big piece of the puzzle for some states. But was leading to serious public health issues and had some serious safety problems and One thing that happened with the tobacco settlements is we saw those companies putting money on the table to in order to you know do public education but also to wean think, people like tobacco farmers off of growing tobacco and to help them transition to other other crops at cap we've basically called for the same thing you get. Some portion of oil industry historical oil industry profits from the last eighty years that they 've made in this region, some small portion, put it into a fund, have it be a nonprofit, have it be independently governed but but put that money toward uh, both coastal restoration from all the harm that the industry's done to the coast in the last eighty years, but also just starting to do things like building up r and d in other other industries, some of the clean energy stuff that 's really possible down there, offshore wind, things like that. So um, so we've kind of been saying, you know, let's look at this like we looked at tobacco and get the industry itself to sort of make a little bit of a payment for reparations for the last, uh, however, you know, few decades of, of, of extracting from this region.
0: And if we um, look at the environmental costs, for instance, I'm in District 29 of Texas, the district for refineries from here east. It's nothing but refineries and people who work for, for refineries. Uh, yep. You may find a machine shop, and that machine shop ultimately works for something that will probably wind up in that refinery. Um, so the, a lot of the folks here, um, as you pointed out, are very, very uh, – they're union members, uh, very likely. They're blue-collar. The average yep. median income in my area is $31,000 a year. Uh, considering the amount of oil that flows through here, it's uh, stunning to think that the, um, the uh, economic median there is $31,000 a year. And right. it, again, that reminds me of uh, Iran, the uh, the royalties there uh, reminds me of Nigeria and the problems there. There, where again, money is you know the money is flowing out of the ground, but it's not making it any kind of windfall for the people themselves who have to sever the uh, environmental um, and um, you know health costs from living in these refinery districts. Um, yeah, and ex- can you give me an example, uh, maybe of, for instance, if people all worked for Uh, Refinery A, um, without naming a particular company, but what type of plan could be used to migrate people from a petroleum-based job at plant A into other parts of the uh, economy?
1: Well, you know, I think it's, it's kind of two things. It's not just sort of migrating specific individuals, because we're going to be drilling for a while. I mean, you don't just okay. stop an industry and then immediately sort of move to something else. Um, these are slow transitions. Okay. Uh, they have to be planned for. They take a long time. So I think it's less. I mean, there certainly are examples of specific industries that you can, that, that would be interesting in terms of kind of transitioning from, uh, offshore oil drilling. And one of them I just mentioned is offshore wind. You know, the offshore mm-hmm. wind, the platforms that are used for those wind turbines, the ships that are used for operating and maintenance, a lot of that is the same um, yeah. you know, or could be pretty easily adapted. And I think that's an interesting question. I, I kind of moving to that. But, you know, the other side of this isn't sort of these specific people. Um, it's more, you know, kind of having an economic development plan for the region that's for the next twenty years that looks at you know where are our investments in R&D, how come this region isn't at the leading edge of uh, you know, oceans, uh, research and technology and oceans uh, management. How come this region's not at the leading edge in, you know, designing things like some of the safety equipment that would make these practices better? How come they're not at the leading edge of, of uh, um, you know, new technologies for uh, for wave energy and other things that really would make use of, of, of the ocean? So it's kind of like that. It's like, you know, new investments in research and development, doing some actual workforce and education investments down there, trying to just get the region to start thinking ahead to uh, a range of other economic activities and other industries that also would build on the unique characteristics of this region, which, of course, are access to the water and a lot of the kind of unique skills and uh, backgrounds of some of the workers down there.
0: And do we have any political leaders who have, um, in this cacophony of of, uh, nothingness, have we had any leaders who, uh, congressional members, I, I should say, who have taken on initiatives like this?
1: It's you know to some extent it's interesting. Um, uh, Senator Landry, for instance, has been really active in trying to get more of the royalties from the oil companies to go to the states to do things like coastal, coastal restoration, okay. which I think is laudable. The only problem with that is that if you use royalties, then you're depending on the ongoing right. uh, industry <laughs> in order to fix the harms caused by the industry, and that's a little bit um, of a perverse incentive. Uh, so uh, I think people are just starting to look at this, though. You know, everyone is so focused on the short-term right now with this sure. bill and trying to just stop this, stop it, stop the leak. Um, but when people's heads come up from that, I think we're going to see a lot of focus on the long-term and on uh, and really why, what this region needs to do to move forward from this.
0: This isn't really necessarily a conversation about campaign financing, but again, looking at the money that goes into the coffers of these politicians, Um do you have a sense um of what uh citizens can do related to their representatives if they're concerned about that to help dispel uh, uh, the conflict of interest in the politician realm to make sure that they're getting a fair uh, fair shake from that representative just basically call <laughs> that's, up and that's pressure a them? Tough one. Yeah.
1: um I mean I think you know it's uh it's a real good question you know the places that have um uh campaign limits uh limits on how much candidates can spend um, tend to have more candidates who come into the race without a ton of money and without a lot of industry ties. I think that's good. Um, and uh, incidentally, in those places, you tend to see more women and people of color run for office, which is okay. good. Um, Arizona is a good example. There's campaign limits there. Um, uh, I think it's Arizona. Now maybe it's New Mexico. Now I'm going to get my facts wrong. but um, <laughs> uh, So I think that's important and clearly ties to the industry have an impact on decisions that are made, and especially when you're talking about people elected for four years or six years or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're not going to see, you know, what's their incentive to do a long-term economic plan if, in the short term, they can do something for the industry that's gotten them into office. Um, it's, it's a tough one. So, uh, yeah, I think it'd be great to see, see better limits. I think that campaign reform, financial reform underlies a lot of the stuff we talk about um, in terms of uh, how to move forward in a more progressive way.
0: So, and last question, do you have any particular uh, milestones in front of us we need to keep an eye on, other than obviously we want to see the well-capped, but uh, we know that there's an appeal being filed, but uh, is there anything in the um, immediate future we need to maybe keep an eye on? Well, I mean, yeah, of course, course we got to see the
1: well-capped. Um, I think we've got to do a couple things. You know, there's a whole-scale reorganization going on with the what was called the Minerals Management Service. Um, they, we need to keep an eye on that, uh, see what that reorganization looks like.
0: You know no, preliminary. Trans- Did that break down into three organizations? I remember. I think okay. five. Five. Um,
1: but needs to be as transparent as possible and okay. as accountable as possible. There's no question. I think we need to be carefully paying attention to what kinds of regulation are being put onto these deep water uh, rigs in whatever period of time we now have to do that. Um, so, are there federal monitors going out there? Are they putting new standards into place? Things that would prevent these kinds of. Uh, accidents in the future are we looking to countries like norway which has pretty strong safety standards to maybe learn some lessons and how to avoid these accidents before they happen instead of having big fights about liability after they happen um, but then we're going to look down the line. We, you know, there's a huge cleanup effort that has to happen, and the the, the, uh, the $20 billion escrow fund, the claims that come through that are going to have to be managed really well, and that has to be real transparent and efficient. And then we have, again, this longer-term question of what's the economy look like in the future of this region and how do we clean up from, you know, 80 to 100 years of, of drilling. So many, many things. This is going to be going on for a long time. We are not going to see the end of this anytime
0: soon. Yeah, and I think that the frustration I know I'm hearing in adults around me is that um, this is the chapter for the rest of our lives. Yep. In a way, the rest of our lives, and I, I'm guessing you and I are roughly contemporaries, um, but you know, the rest of our lives will be completely defined by this. And yep. our children's lives at least will be affected for an unknown length of time. And how uh, just at the public sphere, the discussion of it, the, the slow uh, response to it. And even if we try to work fast, it's going to be a slow response.
1: I think that's right, and the transition slow. And the one last thing I should definitely say is, you know, we do have a moment to think about the long term right now. We do have a moment where we could do something more comprehensive and long term on energy and climate writ large. So this isn't just about getting the Gulf states to be a little bit more diversified in terms of the industry. It's about getting the country to be much more diversified in terms of what we rely on for energy and fuel. And it is time. I mean, this is such a wake-up call that we have to make some serious decisions about that. And uh, start moving toward a whole range of new solutions for for fuel and for energy that aren't so risky, that aren't so dangerous, that aren't all imported, that are, you know, more local, that are more homegrown. We have to really, really, really be moving in that direction, and we have a chance to do that right now, and it would be a real tragedy if we, we, uh, we missed out on it.
0: Kate Gordon from the Center for American Progress I want to thank you for joining us and hope you'll come back Thanks. as we look into this and especially as we continue to need to look at the uh, the effect on the jobs in the area and uh, as we try to create alternatives for uh, the people who um, will definitely have to keep working and uh, yep. bringing in revenue. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks Chris. All right, bye-bye.